0: Please pray with us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, a sermon is not about Mother's Day, per se, but I do want to start by saying, we are so grateful for all of the mothers in our Thank you for what you do. What I'd like to focus on for the gospel is the reading, or er, on the sermon is the reading from the gospel. I've always loved John's gospel. He opens with a poetic prologue, establishing a sense of wonder and mystery, and then moves into an account of Jesus' life and ministry that focuses on the transformative love of God. Almost all of us are familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Yet this is only one example of many ways that John focuses on Jesus' ministry of love. Another love passage in John's Gospel that receives a lot of attention is the final chapter. There, Jesus restores Peter through a series of questions about Peter's own love for him. Though Peter is unsure of his own ability to love Jesus after his many failures, the Lord meets Peter where he is and affirms him as a faithful servant and steward of God's deep care for his people. In all of John's love-focused gospel, the verses that we heard from chapter 15 uh, in the reading this morning are the clearest presentation of how God's love is meant to intersect with the love that Christians have for one another. Put another way, What we see in these verses is perhaps the most important explanation of how imperfect humans like you and me are able to, indeed, are commanded to love with the very same powerful love that our Lord had for us when He went up to the cross. But before we get into what these verses hold for us, there are a few important details about the context that set the stage for this message from Jesus. Don't worry, as Jesus has commanded his disciples to love, so has Father Stephen commanded that we keep our sermons short We're working at the King's morning service. (laughs) So I'll be brief about the setting. Here are the essentials. Beginning with chapter 13 and going all the way through chapter 16, John gives us the longest account of the Last Supper of all the Gospel writers. Throughout these chapters, Jesus and the disciples are in an intimate setting. The Lord washes their feet, tells them of His coming departure, and gives them news of the Holy Spirit, who will be a comfort to them as they mourn the loss of daily fellowship with Him. In the midst of these affirmations and assurances in their intimate space, Jesus issues a charge to the disciples to love one another, Though he elaborates on this command in our verses from chapter 15. He first issues the charge soon after displaying his own humbling love for them in the washing of their feet. That's early in chapter 13. There he says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. At first glance, this may not seem like much of a new command. After all, the Anglicans hear Jesus' own summary of the law every service. It's from Matthew 22. We know, just as the disciples surely knew that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That wasn't new. So this new man asking us to love one another doesn't strike us as particularly new. We're left asking, what's new about it? What has Jesus done here that makes the love we are meant to have for one another? different from the love that we were already commanded to have for our neighbor. Furthermore, why has Jesus waited until he is with his disciples in this intimate setting to issue this command That is going to be central, the central characteristic that identifies his followers. As he said, by this all will know that you are my disciples. Well, it's not until we get to our verses in chapter 15 that we find answers to these questions. After all, in chapter 13, the only context that Jesus has given for this love is that it is to be like the love which He has just displayed. If we were to be very literal readers, we might have taken this as a command to have foot washings every Sunday instead of communion. This could get weird and might make it harder for you to invite friends to church. Anyhow, by the time we get to our verses in chapter 15, the context is broadened. Jesus has introduced the Holy Spirit and the abiding love of the Father. So with these things in mind, let's turn our attention to verses 9 through 11. Notice that Jesus starts by affirming that the disciples have been loved by him with the same love that he has received From the Father. He does not tell them to start working for his love, but to remain, to abide, stay put in the love that they are already receiving. I think that part of what is new in Jesus' command, then, is that the disciples should love one another as it has been preempted by his own abiding love. Especially since he has just promised that the Holy Spirit will teach them all things and help them to remember him and his command and support support them in following him. Without the promise of the Holy Spirit working in them, it would have seemed impossible to obey Jesus as Jesus had obeyed the Father. Yet, because the Spirit has been promised, the disciples can hear the charge to obey as something that will bring them perfect joy. He is basically saying that the way to be loved by God is to let the God you love help you love him for your sake. I know, that's a bit puzzling for an early morning service, but it's the intricate way that Jesus assures his disciples that they have been brought into the divine love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit every command that is given will also come with the strength to see it through. Verses 12 through 13 come back to the command that Jesus first gave after washing the disciples' feet. Only here he clarifies that the love he wants them to have for one another goes even further than free pedigrees. What he's talking about is a costly, self-giving love between friends. But what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15 is what really distinguishes this new command to love as something different from the love the disciples are already commanded to give to their neighbor. These verses establish the disciples as legitimate co-workers of God, as His beloved friends. This is not merely a command to love and honor God or other people. This new command is to love the friends of God with the very love of God that He has poured out on His disciples. It is not a general command of love for all, but a command to love a very specific group of people, most of all. This is why the new command was only given in the intimate setting at the Last Supper. It is a command for every disciple to give our lives to the church. For as verses 16 and 17 confirm, this is why each of us was chosen by God, that the intimate love among members of the body would bear abiding fruit as a witness for God's saving love to the rest of the world. There are at least two ways that we need to think about extending this love for life. The first and broadest application is that we need to value the whole church as Christ's body. We say the Nicene Creed all the time, and in that creed we affirm one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. If then we are actually to live out this love for one another as a church, we must be diligent in supporting our brothers and sisters across the globe and across denominational lines. How often has our witness to the world been jeopardized by our failure to share our resources with fellow believers? How deeply have we scandalized the unity of the body of Christ by petty squabbles? We need to remember this mandate of familial love in all of our interactions with other believers of any kind, especially those with whom we most often disagree. How might our political situation in this country Be right now, if all Christians were charitable to one another in the midst of these enormous cultural disagreements, what kind of testimony would that be to the abiding joy of the Holy Spirit? Yet, as grand as and as important as I believe that broad application to be, I think that the more important application of the command to love one another is the focus on the more intimate level of our own congregation. Jesus, after all, gave the command to a very small group of individuals. He was speaking not to the disciples as some ambiguous group, but to Peter and James, to Levi, the tax collector, and Judas, the zealot. His friends, he knew them very well as individuals. And he knew how they could figure. Yet because the Holy Spirit humbled each of these men different as they were to love one another in the self-giving love that Jesus had commanded, many millions of people, all of us included, have come to know the joy of the Lord. We need to take the command to really love one another in our little community, very seriously. I bring this up because it can be easy to lose the trees for the forest. It's not uncommon these days to see churches that can put together an enormous budget for missions or for orphanages or for disaster relief. And yet the congregation is more of a humanitarian society than a community where people are known and loved in a transformative way. I'm not suggesting that we have a problem with that here. In fact, I think that Incarnation is a pretty special place where people are invested in one another. We do want to be here and want to live with each other and engage. But it is important that we remember how crucial this is to our witness in society. If our neighbors who don't know Christ do not see deep relationships and a transformative love from pew to pew, they will never believe that our Lord is sovereign enough to save the world. The way that we love each other at incarnation, here and now, will reverberate through eternity. Many more people would believe in the good news of the resurrection if they saw his self-giving spirit of life in his body of believers today. So then, friends, as we move forward with our service, affirm your belief in the church and the Nicene Creed. Pray earnestly for one another and for Christians across the world during our prayers. And come up to communion in gratitude for the many amazing friends of God in our midst. May the God who loved us so mightily. Give us mighty love for one another. As we work together to make them known. Amen. Amen.